hear God's word to you this morning. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padam, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here. Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. 
Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines legacy as something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. Now, that's what's going on in this beautifully crafted account of the patriarch Jacob's last days on this side of glory. He's about to pass on the covenant promises of a people and a land. He's ready to pass on the incredible heritage of God's grace to him and his father and his father's father. Most of all, he's about to bequeath the promise of a future inheritance guaranteed by the God who had been his shepherd all of his life, even up to that point. Now that's the beautiful richness of this account of the last days of the patriarch Jacob. Jacob not only passes on the objective promises of God Almighty, but notice as we read the text itself, he passes on an account of the subjective reality of experiencing the, that very God walking with him through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. Now to be sure, Jacob will bless the rest of his sons before he dies. But what's special about the blessing he gives here is that he's going to include Joseph's sons as his very own thus including them and their descendants as the direct inheritors of the covenant promises given to, his, given to his father and his grandfather, along with the rest of his children. Now there's a ton of spiritual riches to be mined from this chapter, as we just read, you can see. But in our brief time together this morning, I simply want to highlight a few salient points, salient points from the text. Namely, that God's grace, first of all, by definition, is sovereign grace. That's the first thing we got to see in this text. Secondly, we're going to see that faith by definition is rooted in God's word, sees the invisible, and is primarily focused on the future. That's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. So let's take a look at the first thing. God's grace is by definition sovereign grace. Now we just read it in the text. Joseph presented his sons with the oldest, Manasseh, on Jacob's right, and Ephraim the younger on his left. But Jacob reaches out and crosses his arms and puts his right hand on Ephraim, the younger one's head, and his left on Manasseh, the older son's head. Now, as we just read in the text, it clearly tells us that Joseph was a bit miffed. He was very displeased at this action of his father. He says this, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, and I just love the way he says it here, Jacob says it, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. But nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. And then it tells us, so he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh in verse 20. You see that. Now this has all the history of God's choosing Isaac, not Ishmael, behind it. The history of God choosing Jacob, not Esau. And then later with Judah's sons, Perez and not Zerah. Always the younger. 
contrary to common custom, turning, on, uh, turning it on its head to prove God's sovereign choice by unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor alone. Not the chosen ones deserve it. And Jacob is about to do it here in our text for the last time in the book of Genesis. You know, there's a lot of deja vu here because he's been there. He's done that. But Derek Kidner points this out. He says it really well when he says this. Out of Jacob's long career, Hebrews 11.21 selects this as his outstanding act of faith. That is the blessing of the uh, Joseph's two sons. It has the quality, praised in that chapter, of reaching out towards the promise, even in face of death, having seen it and greeted it from afar. There's gentle irony in the fact that this is just a, such a situation as the one in which he had exercised his guile in his youth. Once more, the firstborn's blessing is, de is destined, the firstborn's blessing is destined for the younger brother. But now there is no faithless scheming or bitter aftertaste. It's an object lesson in quiet responsiveness and faith. Now to be sure, it displeases Joseph. And it wouldn't be the last time that God's sovereign grace would displease the frail and fallen nature of man. Why? Because sovereign grace cuts across the grain of human nature. It cuts across our so-called autonomy or our so-called freedom. So what do we see here? We see that nothing outside of God's sovereign, gracious, gracious choice influences God's choice of his elect. Not conventional birth order. Not any foreseeing good works that they would do someday. No holy disposition in the, in the chosen one, more holy than the other. It's simply a gift of the sovereign, almighty God of all creation who has chosen to be known as the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, sheerly out of his unmerited, undeserved favor, because they were an interesting bunch, weren't they? Augustine once put it this way. He chose us in Christ, not because we were holy, but in order that we might be so. Profound. But in this particular case in Genesis... There is a difference in this choosing of the younger over the older. In this case, it's not a matter of eternal destiny in the sense of one is in the covenant, one is out of the covenant, right? Like Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. But rather, it's more a case of who would receive the greater portion of the blessing. Because it says here, Manasseh would also be included in God's covenant promises, but Ephraim would be greater. He would get the double portion, as it were. So we see God's grace is by de definition sovereign grace. Second thing I want to point out, and this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on, is I think it is just so important for us today and so very practical, is this. The genuine faith we see in this text is rooted in God's word. It sees the invisible and is primarily focused on the future. Those are the three things about saving faith, genuine faith, that we see in this text. That later we'll take a look at, the writer of the Hebrews looks at as something praiseworthy in these patriarchs, Joseph and Jacob, his dad. So let's take a look at the first thing. God's 
excuse me, genuine faith is rooted in God's word. Now that means it's rooted in and grounded on the word of, of the God who has proven himself faithful time and time again. The God who initiates a relationship with fallen sinners by grace alone. In this text, we see Jacob recounts how God Almighty appeared to him in Luz, later renamed Bethel, and blessed him, and how God reiterated the promise he gave to Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, and Jacob's dad, Isaac, and this time he re reiterates it to Jacob personally. What we need to see here is that once again in Genesis, we see that faith looks beyond what you could see to the promise of a future guaranteed by the word of God alone, firmly grounded and founded on God's character and God's works, his faithfulness. Now, I thought we really needed to see this because it needs to be emphasized in the day in which we live that it's not merely faith in faith. That is a belief that all is going to turn out right in the end. It's all going to come out in a wash. If there's anything that has stuck with you throughout our study of Genesis over the past year and a half, can you believe it's been a year and a half? I truly hope and pray it's this. Christian faith, that is your faith if you're a believer here this morning, is not a blind leap in the dark. It rests on the solid, immovable word of the living God, the God of heaven and earth, God Almighty. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who always keeps his promises, every single one without fail. I have, I think, just a few lengthy quotes from Dick Lucas this morning. Um, and it's not because I haven't put hours and hours of my own study in the last few weeks or so. But it's because I quote others to better express myself. <laughs> Which is a quote by, uh, by the way. <laughs> okay, so Dick says this, and he puts it so wonderfully, bless my soul and hope it does you too. He says, all of us are either governed by the world or the word. Let's be honest. All of us are governed by the world, aren't we? We can't help be, we gotta live in it. But if we're ever gonna have a counterweight to the suffocating things around us in the world, We've got to have a counterbalance to the world. The Christian is someone whom the word is more important than the world. So when the world presses in upon me with all its standards and all its viewpoints of worldliness, then the word is constantly counteract, counteracting that. That's what it means to live by faith. The, un, ultimate, ultimately rea the ultimate reality is what God is saying and what God is planning. Isn't that good? It fed my soul. And it rebuked me too. How often I just find myself being influenced and following the world's lead. Too many areas in my life. But that's what's so striking here in Genesis 48. Why does Joseph care about the blessing of a dad who is a nomadic shepherd and doesn't have much to show for it in the world's eyes. All he has to go on is the promise of an invisible God that revealed himself to him about, and who gave him uh, the promises of a bright destiny off in the distant future. 
Now, why would Joseph care about that when he already has an exalted position in the greatest, most powerful, and majestic nation of his day, Egypt? He has it all, according to the world, as if the world was going to measure his life. His wife is an Egyptian, and so his boys are half Egyptian, so he's in. So why would he seek the blessing of his dying father, the shepherd, from Canaan? Because he trusts more in the unseen promises of God for the future than he does in what he can see, touch, and taste here and now, as the majority of the world does. That's what all believers do. We look to the word for our cues, ultimately, not the world. And the interesting thing here is, that word is primarily not about the most fulfilling, incredible, trouble-free, sorrow-free life here and now, but about having a future inheritance waiting for you in glory when Jesus comes back to deliver his people. As Peter puts it, an inheritance in, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Make absolutely no mistake about it. That's the faith that Jacob was passing on to his children and grandchildren here in Genesis 48. You turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11.21. Uh, be a second to get there. If not, you can catch up later. Hebrews 11.21, when the writer of the Hebrews is listing all the different folks of faith from the, uh, a lot of it from, or if not all of it from the book, no, no, most of it from the book of Genesis. In verse 21, he gets to uh, Jacob, and he says this, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, a few weeks ago at Bible study, Katie asked why the writer of the Hebrews connected Jacob's blessing his grandchildren while he was dying to his worshiping while he was leaning on his staff when the incident of worshiping while leaning on his staff occurred sometime before the events that take place in this chapter where he's blessing Joseph's sons. Now, my first response, and I still stand by it, is that the writer of the Hebrew Christians simply wasn't speaking chronologically. In other words, he wasn't saying they, they occurred in the order that he mentioned them. In both instances, he was dying at the time, both when he leaned on his staff and when he blessed his grandchildren. Now, as we know, in some ways it's unfortunate, dying can take a while. It can be a long, sad, difficult process. And one could be on their deathbed for quite some time. And that's why at the beginning of chapter 48, it starts with some time later. When, when in chapter 47, it already said he was dying. But interesting as that may be, here's the thing I didn't see a few weeks ago that one of the commentaries pointed out and made me go, I should have had a V8. It really opened my eyes. Think about it this way, when we turn back to 47, at the end of 47, what we have to notice is what happened just prior to Jacob leaning on his staff and worshiping. 
Well, when we look there, the end of chapter 47, we see that Joseph took an oath to carry Jacob out of Egypt after he died and to bury him in Canaan where his fathers were buried. And Jacob made Joseph swear. He made him take an oath. And Joseph did it. He made the oath, took an oath to bring him back there and not leave him in Egypt. And then it says in the text, Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of a staff. In other words, Jacob bows in worship because he's going to rest with his fathers and share in the future blessing of God's covenant people. By faith, he worshipped the God who always does what he says he's going to do. And that means life beyond the grave. Yes, it's true Jacob didn't have the clear revelation that we have since Christ has come and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Yes, it was shrouded in darkness and mystery, but, and listen to me carefully here, Jacob knew by faith there's a better world to come. Now don't take my word for it. Remember Hebrews 11, beginning in verse, verse 13. All these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so by faith we see Jacob blessed Joseph's sons in regard to that future. Not just the recipients of the promise of physical land and biological children, in other words, a large nation, but the promise of sharing in the lot of God's redeemed children, children and inheriting the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hallelujah. Fast forward with me. Genesis 50. The end of the chapter. And we find that Jacob's dear son Joseph had a faith just like his dad's. And I want you to see, you don't inherit the promises because your parents or grandparents were believers. God has no grandchildren, as the saying goes. No, Joseph had his own faith in the covenant promises of God. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and, say, and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Now that's faith. That's literally sheer, genuine, saving faith that believes God's promises even when you can't see them. What a great legacy to pass on to your family, to your, those who God has called you to disciple, to those who are watching your life. And what a great inheritance to pass on. How does this future-looking faith based on God's faithfulness to, to his people in the past impact us today in the here and the now? 
and the everyday struggles against sin and temptation, when the carnal world of only what you can see and what you can enjoy and what you can experience here and now comes crashing in on us like a flood, relentlessly pressuring us to live for nothing beyond what we can see here and now. Well, by grace through faith, like the great fathers before us, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we could say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone has rightly pointed out, we say life is short, so live it up to the fullest. Should we not say, instead, eternity is long, so let us prepare for it? Or in our case, live in light of it, prioritize, prioritize our lives around it, as the patriarchs did? Told you I had two lengthy quotes from Lucas. I know you probably thought I miscounted, but I didn't. Hear uh, what Lucas says again on this point. It's just too rich not to share it with you and keep it all to myself. He says, faith makes it possible for us to concentrate on the future and the invisible, as opposed to the things that gripped us before we became Christians. What actually grips us and controls our lives in this present world? And what grips us today is this visible world, isn't it? Before we become Christians, indeed, long after we become Christians, the present visible world does have an enormous influence on us, doesn't it? Now, we like to think that our children are open to spiritual things, and so they are. But your children at school are entirely gripped and controlled by what is present and what is visible. They don't see any further than that, and we don't all our lives unless God intervenes. And when God intervenes, he breaks the power of the present and breaks the power of the visible by introducing us to the future and invisible world, which by human power and brain work, you can't understand, of course. It's only when God comes by faith into your heart that suddenly this whole new perspective opens up to you. And then I want to um, end his quote with this one incredible line of his. He says, God wants us to be counteracting the present and the visible with the future and the invisible. My brothers and sisters, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, let's try to not just wrap our heads around that, but let's try to find a, a place deep in our hearts to keep it always before us. When the world tries to squeeze us into its mold as it does every single day, relentlessly, it just does not give up. It's then that we, that we see the true power of true, genuine, saving faith in Christ that takes his word as gospel truth because that's what it is and who sees what's invisible and who looks to the future inheritance that he promised 
And if he promised it, if there's anything the book of Genesis, Genesis has shown us, he will do it. Isn't that great news? That's my prayer that as we leave this place, it wouldn't be just another Sunday morning where we came and did our duty as it were, went to worship. Ah, now we can go out and freely do what we want to do, not thinking about how our lives should reflect our inheritance in eternity with Jesus. I just can't close this message without pointing to one thing in the text that I could miss many other things, but this one I don't want to miss. I would really be derelict in my duty. Look with me in verse, in, in uh, chapter 48. In verse 15 and following, when he's blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob says this. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been, has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. What I want to point out here is that Jesus is here in this text. Notice Jacob mentions the angel in verse 16, who has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. Who is this angel? Well, you may recall when Joseph wrestled with this mysterious man earlier in Genesis. He then says, I have seen the face of God and lived in reference to this mysterious man. And then in this passage, he calls him an angel, the angel. And then in Hosea's book, Hosea refers to the event of Jacob wrestling with this mysterious figure, and he calls the mysterious figure the angel. Well, here I submit to you this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, the second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who was Jacob's deliverer. And although in the Old Testament you only have a few of those appearances, we now know this very same Jesus that delivered Jacob from all his troubles is our Lord and Savior who has taken on a body permanently and who is now at the right hand of the Father with that glorified body. And so I do want to close with, with saying this. Yes, indeed it's true that true, saving, genuine faith is rooted in God's word. It sees the invisible. It's primarily focused on the future. And we must close with this. It is centered squarely on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He is our hope, and our reunion with him is the very thing that should be driving us on every day. Let's pray.
Father, how we thank you for this wonderful passage. It's just too much to preach in, at one, in one sitting, as it were. Father, we thank you that your grace is sovereign. One, two, three, four. Father, we thank you that your grace is sovereign grace, that you give it freely, that nothing or no one or nothing foreseen in us compels you to do so, but you do it freely out of your love and mercy and grace. And we thank you, Lord, that in your mercy and grace, you have granted us true saving faith, faith that has the power to see beyond the here and now and grab hold of your great and precious promises that transform us into your likeness here and now and someday will bring us safely to those heavenly, to the heavenly shore in the presence of you. And we do pray and pray, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has won the victory for us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.